All right, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21, we continue our study of this great and challenging book. Last week's message is yet to be up online. It indeed was challenging many theological and moral difficulties that have resolution but need thought and need biblical application, Scripture interpreting Scripture in order to rightly divide the word of truth. And so I'll get that up and I encourage you, if you missed it, get a hold of that. If, if you heard it but didn't get it still, all of it, you might go back and, and listen again. But we have new ground today, new ground, same characters, but new ground as we continue in Genesis chapter 21 to the end of the chapter. The title of today's message is The Tale of Two Sons. The Tale of Two Sons. And begin reading with me, if you will, in Genesis 21, verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham was circumcised, his son, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore, she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water and the skin was used up and she placed the boy under the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And we'll stop our reading there. I do hope to finish the chapter today, but we'll stop there with the two sons of this chapter now revealed to us. The son of promise 
and the son of the bondwoman, the tale of two sons. Who are the two sons? The two sons are, of course, Isaac and Ishmael, the son of promise, Isaac, the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael. Let's consider this son here in chapter 21, verse 1 through 8, this son of promise. Again, back to verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And what we find here is God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, that God had declared that this unlikely couple in an unlikely situation and that she was barren, she was unable to conceive at an unlikely time and that now both father and mother are quite aged at 100 for Abraham and 90 for Sarah. This son is the son of promise. This son is the son of miraculous conception. This son is the son of grace. This son is the son of God's clear provision. This son is a type of Christ. He's a picture of the Christ who would come. And we'll see in the following chapter, Lord willing, next week, that indeed this son would be further yet a type of Christ is God calls upon Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so the son of promise here, promise given to Abraham, promise given to Sarah. And you'll recall that Abraham and Sarah both laughed. They both laughed. And I told you when I preached about that, that uh, my own mind was more focused on uh, Sarah's laughter. And somehow I had dismissed Abraham's laughter from memory. And it's in large part due to a great many sermons I've heard and commentaries I've read. And once again, this week in studying, the commentators glossed over Abraham's historic laugh when God first told him. And they, they said such things as, Abraham laughed a laughter of, of joyous faith that God would bless him with a child in his old age. But Sarah, Sarah had a laughter of disbelief. Hers was sinful. And that's just actually not true. <laughs> they both laughed in a very similar way. They, they both were, were totally taken aback. They were incredulous. They, they could not believe in their flesh that God could do this thing. And I don't think it's so much a matter of really not believing that God is able. But they, like us, are, are frail. And in their human frailty and experience, their human experience, we capitulate to foolishness. Well, technically, we know that God is omnipotent. And technically, we know that, I mean, God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, right? And he can circumvent the order of his design, the laws of his universe that he created at any time, at any time. And we call that a miracle. So we know that technically. But in the practical day-to-day experience of life, we have a hard time believing that he can or will do that even when he promises it. And so here, the Lord has promised repeatedly, repeatedly, that Sarah will conceive. And she will conceive Abraham's son. 
the son of promise, at exactly the time the Lord has determined. And they were unbelieving to the point of laughing in the face of God, which is fairly audacious. Until you consider the disciples who were told again and again and again through prophecy and through the Lord Jesus' own words, which of course is prophecy, but prophecy being lived out before them and spoken out before them by Jesus, Jesus who had shown himself omnipotent over wind, waves, uh, water, uh, death, sickness, lameness, demons. Yet when Jesus told them that he would rise again on the third day, they were not at the tomb. They were hiding. And the women that were at the tomb were not at the tomb waiting for the resurrected Jesus. They were there at the tomb for what? To further embalm him. And when the angel appeared to them, they did not say, where is the resurrected Lord? They said, where is his body? And so that is human nature. Despite how we have seen God work in the past, despite that which we know of God, that He is omnipotent, that He is all-powerful, that He can and will do miracles, and He certainly does the miracles that He says He will do. (laughs) Yet in our frailty and foolishness, we doubt God. And so here the text is making the point that God is faithful to carry out that which He has declared. The Lord visited Sarah as He had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So this is a miraculous conception through the power of God, exactly how the Lord declared it. Verse 2, for Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age and the set time at the set time for which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And this name, Isaac, literally means laughter. His name is laughter. And later on here, we'll find further commentary on that, but it is interesting that it's laughter. It's almost a confession, right? We laughed. We doubted God. We disbelieved. Now, the Lord's going to change that disbelieving laughter into true laughter of joyous reception of God's blessing. But for all of his life, Isaac will remind father and mother of this great blessing that God gave and that they doubted and yet received. And so let me make just a brief application. God has made a great many promises to us. A new heavens, a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. The wiping away of every tear, right? Because there's no more sin. There's no more death. There is no threat of hell. There's only the fullness of the love of God forever and the love of God's blood-bought saints forever and ever and ever. I mean, the promises are rich, are they not? In a place that God has described as having streets of gold, right? So what do you fill the potholes with? More gold? This is an amazing promise. The Lord Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll receive you to myself. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can take you from the Father's hand. A great many promises that will be made like pillars in the house of God, permanent residence. A great many promises that, that we are indeed washed in the blood of the Lamb, that our sins have been imputed to Christ and His righteousness imputed to us. When the Father looks upon us, He only sees His child. 
He sees the perfect righteousness of his own son, Jesus, a righteousness that is alien to us except that Christ has bestowed it upon us, not our righteousness saving us, but his righteousness by grace alone through faith alone and not our works. So we're not striving day after day after day in our works to save ourselves. Now we want to work for the glory of God because we love God, because he has saved us. But we, we don't strive in fear that we'll yet go to hell as if there are cosmic scales and on one side or our good deeds and the other bad. Hear me, hear me, even to this day, my, my guess is for all of us, and even at the end of your life, that your bad deeds will outweigh your good. Except that Christ deeds, His perfect adherence to the law, His perfect absolute righteousness will be on the other side. That is our only hope. And it is our certain hope. And so a great many promises have been made to us. The Abrahamic covenant is ultimately a promise to us. That we are the seed of Abraham spiritually because of the seed, capital S of Abraham, who is Jesus, who would come of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God's promises are certain and God's promises are sure. And all the pains of this fallen world, all the suffering of this fallen world, all the real heartaches, real heartaches, will be removed. They, They are temporary. They are brief. And then forever comes. Forever. It's like winning the lotto, only all your relatives don't come begging it and lawyers don't come stealing it in court and, and uh, the, the bank doesn't you know, embezzle it away and, and your dead hands don't give it up, right? And, and it doesn't make you greedy and, and self-loving. It doesn't give you the Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar complex. It's like winning the, the greatest lotto ever. You're a child of God. And you will dwell in the love of God forever and you will never want. <laughs> you will never want. It is beyond comprehension. You know, we, we should be driving around telling people, we won! We won! Amen. What? You, did you win the lotto? No! Salvation! By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone! The Bible says we are more than victors. We won, we won. What did your team win? Well, yes, Team Jesus. We're more than victors in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says in the context of tremendous persecution where Christians are suffering and dying daily for the faith, yet you are more than victors in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we are just like Abraham and Sarah. We, we tend to laugh at God. <laughs> Blessings, heaven, eternal love, no more death, no more tears, no more pain. Ha, ha, ha. We, we treat the eternal gold of heaven as fool's gold and the temporal gold of this world as that which is eternal. And, and that is truly foolish. And so let's, let's see here on the pages of Scripture God's faithfulness to keep His promises. And 
This promise of this son ultimately points to the promise of the greater son. This promise of this miracle child points to the promise of the greater miracle child, the Lord Jesus. Oh, may God turn our foolish laughter into perpetual laughter, knowing that we are victors and more than victors in Christ. Verse 4, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham is obeying the commandments of God actively, willingly, joyfully. Verse 5, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And if we you know, did the math in the chapters previous, we know that. But the point is being made. It's being pressed in. He's 100 years old. This is a miracle child born out of normal season of life. Verse 6, and Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. God's ways are higher than our ways. And God's promises are good. They're good. All of his promises are good. He will make good on every one of them. And there's nothing that can stay his hand. There's nothing that can thwart him from keeping his promises. Not even our own doubt. Not even our own frailty. God ordained that he would call Abram out of the heathen nations. And make him a follower of God. God ordained that he would call Sarah and make her a follower of God. God ordained that that he would make them the mother and father of the line that would lead ultimately to the miracle child, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And all of these promises will come to pass, and when we embrace them rightly, now or later, I counsel that we do it now, we'll be laughing rightly, laughing as scoffers no more. Oh, that, that is too fantastic. That is, that's too much. That's too far. That, that's, that's just beyond comprehension. We'll stop scoffing and laughing as scoffers. And begin to laugh as worshipers. Laugh as those who are overcome by the joy of the Lord. It's such astounding blessings that he would bestow upon undeserving sinners like ourselves. And it's easy to look in the pages of scripture and say Abraham is an undeserving sinner. Sarah, an undeserving sinner too. What a couple they are. Patriarch and matriarch. Um, Yes, they're undeserving sinners just like us. Saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that's the whole point. Again, God is the hero of the story. Not any man and not any woman. And she makes a point there in verse 7. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. This is just beyond comprehension and 
you know, there are details in all of our lives. You know, who would have said that you and you and you and you and you and me, all unlikely characters, and this one up here, all unlikely characters, and those two over there, all unlikely characters, right, would one day be servants of the Most High God and children in God's house forever. Made useful for service now. Details in all of our lives like this. And may others be compelled to laugh. A laugh of faith, a laugh of joy at God's amazing grace as they look upon our lives. Seeing not that we are now perfect, but we are redeemed. We are born again. We are new creatures. The old is past, and behold, all things have become new in a radical way. The son of promise. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore, in keeping with the covenant God made in chapter 12 and Following chapters, descendants as the stars of the sky and sand of the seashore. His descendants, his spiritual descendants as well as physical descendants would be vast, uncountable as far as humanly speaking. And they're still being counted day by day as men and women repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh, there's another. Oh, there's another. Oh, there's another seed of Abraham, another star, another grain of sand as God has promised. The son of promise. The son of the bondwoman, verse 9 and following, the son of the bondwoman. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing to Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, and the water and the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot, for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God 
opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, the son of the bondwoman. So Sarah sees, in verse 9, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Now, scoffing at what? Scoffing at this boy, uh, this newborn child who now has grown and is being weaned. Verse 8 says, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And it is suggested, uh, based upon knowledge of the culture and times, he was probably two to three years old being weaned. And this was a a celebration now of God's covenant uh, with Abraham, now passed down through Isaac, a celebration of God's promise being fulfilled in this miracle child given to Abraham and Sarah. And in the midst of this grand celebration and feast, we have a scoffer, a scoffer. And depending again on the age of Isaac, the scoffer is either 16 or 17 years old, and he's disdaining his, his wee little brother there, which you, humanly speaking, might be able to understand. He is the son of the bondwoman. This is the promised son of the wife. You can understand how all these relationships might work out on a practical level, and yet it would seem that there is sin here, that this is not a, a uh, healthy disposition for Ishmael to take toward his little brother. There are those that go far into uh, speculating as to what went into the scoffing, but the Bible simply says he was scoffing. There are Hebrew extra-biblical texts that get quite creative, Uh, very interesting. You might look those up on your own time, and some Islamic texts as well, because Islam looks back to Ishmael. But we'll leave it at scoffing. Verse 10, Therefore she, Sarah, said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, her scoffing son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So Sarah saw this is going to be a problem. And you recall that Sarah was put out initially when the bondwoman had conceived, and now she's really put out. 17, 16, 17 years later, when the son of the bondwoman, Ishmael, is scoffing. And, and she could see potentially even uh, murder, right? Who's going to inherit Abraham's kingdom? Who's going to er- inherit Abraham's uh, covenant promises? They tried to, and remember Sarah had her hand in this, a very large hand. They tried to create a path to fulfilling God's promises through their own fleshly wisdom, through their own means. Look, there's no heir. We need an heir. Okay, take my bondwoman. She will provide an heir, and it will be as if it was my son. Well, that was not the plan of God. That was not the son of promise. That's the son of the bondwoman. And uh, Sarah never rejoiced in that child, and she still is standing where she began. uh, A scoffer somewhat herself, 
even though she had a hand in the creation of this child that is now standing scoffing at Isaac. So she would have the bondwoman and her son Ishmael cast out. And in verse 11, the matter was very displeasing to Abraham's sight because of his son. Abraham loved Ishmael, and he did not want his son to be put out. He no doubt had some care for the bondwoman as well. And yet, uh, who knows how the bondwoman has been behaving towards Sarah and what all has come to pass in the 16 or 17 years since this began. And so he is deeply concerned for his son Ishmael. And God, verse 12, says to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so Ishmael was not the plan of God. Ishmael was the son of the bondwoman. Ishmael, throughout the rest of the Bible, will become a picture of works righteousness, a picture of dead religion, a picture of the religion of man that opposes the salvation that God would provide by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Son, Jesus Christ, alone. And so Ishmael is to be put out. We need a separation. And all throughout the history of Israel, God kept his people separate. And we begin to see that kind of separation here. Ishmael must go. The bondwoman must go, and you must let her go, Isaac. And it was never the plan of God. This was never my plan. And so you have gone your own way, you've done your own thing, and there's going to be some pain here now. You're going to have to give that up, Abraham. Nevertheless, God says this, verse 13, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. And so uh, Abraham the next morning rises early, takes the bread and the water, gives it to Hagar, sends her off with the boy. They wander in the wilderness. They run out of water. It seems death is imminent. She places the boy under some bushes and moves away, doesn't want to see him die. And the Lord specifically the angel of God, a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus, calls out to Hagar and says to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. So as God said to Abraham, uh, verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the bondwoman. Now God has said to the bondwoman, Hagar, I will make him a great nation. And then the Lord opens her eyes, and there's a well of water, and she fills the skin, and they drink, and they live, and he becomes an archer, and they dwell in the wilderness of Paran, and Hagar takes an Egyptian wife for her son Ishmael. What is this great nation? that God would make. And let me just say that God's ways are higher than our ways. And 
Is this son Ishmael a son of covenant? He is not. Do we get any sense anywhere that Ishmael is going to be a son of faith, a child of God, even though God has interacted with Hagar and has a plan for Ishmael? We don't get the idea that Ishmael will ever be a son of God, that Ishmael will ever be under the covenant that's through the line of Abraham and Isaac, that Ishmael would ever have faith in Yahweh, we don't see that. And there are those that that stumble over that, and I just counsel you, don't stumble there. If you must stumble, stumble over into Romans 9 and see that God has made some vessels for noble purposes and some for ignoble. And see that even from the same womb, those womb-mates, Esau and Jacob, who would be the sons of Isaac, those womb-mates, one was chosen as a vessel of destruction, a vessel of wrath, and one chosen as a vessel of mercy. And we must let God be sovereign in all that he does and know that God is a just judge. And there is no standard of good or evil, right or wrong outside of God that we could dare or would even possibly justly try to judge God with. And so God chose one son over the other, the son of promise, the son of miracle, the son that God would provide to Abraham and Sarah through Sarah's womb. God rejected Ishmael, and yet God has a plan for Ishmael. He's going to make him a great nation. I warn you, I have a fair bit of notes on this, this nation that he would become and how that plays out in History And I'll I'll be reading excerpts from a book titled The Blood of the Moon uh, regarding Ishmael and Isaac, beginning on page 88. It says there, Abraham was known as a man of faith, but the fruit of his doubt has most shaped the spiritual and geopolitical crisis in the Middle East today. God promised him, Abraham, an heir when he came up out of Ur in the land of the Chaldees. God told him that through that heir, the nations would be blessed. Through that heir, mighty people would be raised up who would be the focal point of faith, hope, and love the world over. Abraham believed and thus became the friend of God. But that promised heir was not forthcoming. Years passed, then decades. As the time slowly wore on, Abraham began to have subtle doubts. He began to fear that he had perhaps misunderstood God's promise. Sarah, his wife, was barren, and both were becoming quite elderly. The possibility of their natural heir seemed increasingly impossible, so he and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. In some parts of the ancient Middle East, it was obligatory for a barren wife to provide her husband with an indentured concubine who would bear children for her by proxy. Legally, the children were to be the issue of the wife, not the servant. In their doubt, Abraham and Sarah resorted to this surrogacy scheme, and a child was conceived. They named him Ishmael. Fourteen years later, they saw how foolish they had been to doubt God's promise. A child was born to Sarah at the age of 90. The natural heir they had yearned for was theirs. They named him Isaac. Conflict between these two sons of Abraham began almost from the start. One was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, and the other was born according to the spirit, Isaac. And that's a quote of Galatians 4.29, born according to the flesh, born according to the spirit, Galatians 4.29. 
The one disinherited the other, apparently became bitter, mocking and persecuting his half-brother. Eventually, the situation became so intolerable that Sarah demanded that Ishmael and his Egyptian concubine mother, Hagar, be expelled from the family to wander in the desert. And we've just read that from Genesis 21, verses 9 through 21. That was not the end of the matter. It was only the beginning. According to the Bible, Ishmael went to live in the wilderness of Paran in the region of Hejaz. Now, Genesis 25, 18 gives us more information on that. There he had 12 patriarchal sons, as did both of his nephews, Jacob and Esau. Scripture associates the clans and tribes descended from him, from Ishmael, with the Midianites, the Edomites, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians. This concurs with Islamic tradition, which asserts that Ishmael settled in the city of Mecca, which eventually became the capital of Hejaz and the holy city of Islam. There he became the unquestioned leader of all the diverse peoples throughout the Middle East. Meanwhile, Isaac begat a long line of faithful men, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and David, who were able to claim the full inheritance of Abraham, the land of Israel. From Isaac came the Jews, from Ishmael came the Arabs, and the two have been at enmity with each other ever since. Israel is the promised land of the Jews, as God declared it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. A land, a seed, and a blessing. The seed, through miracle, through Sarah's womb, Isaac. They went their own way. They had their own plan. They tried to achieve God's ends in their flesh, and it produced another seed that would become the enemy of the seed of God, an enemy of of Isaac for all time up through this day. When Moses secured freedom from slavery in Egypt for his people, he led them back to that patriarchal homeland. They had been absent 400 years. During that time, others had inhabited the region. The Canaanites, Ammonites, Edomites, Moabites, Midianites, and Philistines had made their homes in and around Palestine, and they were hardly inclined to recognize Israel's prior Claim. Now, you should recognize one of those names, Edomites. So now we have the Ishmaelites and the Edomites together in this promised land of Canaan, and the descendants of Isaac are coming back to take it, for it is rightfully theirs. In addition, the original settlers, the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Girgashites, and Jebusites, there'll be a test on this later, were equally uncooperative. War between Ishmael and Isaac was inevitable. According to the Bible, the conquest of the land under leadership of heroes of faith and valor, such as Joshua, Caleb, Othiel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Samuel, Saul, and David, was a long, bloody, and torturous affair not to be forgotten by either side ever. You get this? These heroes that we read about in the Old Testament, they were fighting these various people groups. It's all the descendants of Isaac fighting against the descendants of Ishmael with some Edomites and a few others mixed in. Edomites being descendants of Esau. The Sahih Muslim annals, written during the time of Muhammad's hijra, or exile, in the Medina, assert this, quote, The criminal Jews have brought destruction upon the Ummah since the earliest times. Ummah means faithful Muslim. 
So the criminal Jews have brought destruction upon the Ummah since the earliest times. Their leaders conspired to send the innocent of Canaan away from their homes. They repulsed the pleas of the Philistine widows and Moabite orphans and washed their fields in the blood of the Ammonite poor. Therefore they shall not stand in the day of judgment, nor shall they prevail against the sure coming of jihad. Allah shall pronounce just retribution, and the Ummah shall observe with joy and gladness. And so this dates back to around 700 A.D., where they're writing about Israel's conquering of the Ummah, and the Ummah being the Canaanites, being the descendants of Ishmael. Several years before he signed the extraordinary Camp David Accord with Israel, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat said, quote, the assassination of Arab brethren like, hear this, Goliath, by Jewish sheepherders like David, is the sort of shameful ignominy that we must yet set aright in the domain of the occupied Palestine homeland. So when you hear about you know, the Palestinian plight and the struggle between the Palestinians and the Jews and the Gaza Strip and all this, you've got to understand, to them, this isn't just the daily news or a current geopolitical struggle. This goes all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael, and all the descendants of Isaac and Ishmael. It goes back to Goliath and David, that little upstart sheep herder. About that same time, the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat declared, quote, Be assured that the many indignities heaped upon the Palestinian people since ancient times must and shall be avenged. Israel's policy in the occupied territories is little more than an extension of the imperialist tactics of the conqueror Joshua. Surely the judgment of Allah is reserved for them until Palestine is transferred from Dar al-Harb to Dar al-Islam. Ishmael shall have his revenge. That's Yasser Arafat. Ishmael shall have his revenge. Following the demise of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians, it seemed that Ishmael had his revenge. But then the Persians restored Isaac to Palestine, and the ancient rivalry was resumed, beginning with Tobiah and Sanballat's challenge of Ezra and Nehemiah. The advent of Greek and Roman imperial rule quelled the fires of hatred for a time. In other words, Ishmael and Isaac's descendants were not able to war against each other because they were now under Roman and Greek rule. Stability was forcibly imposed on the Middle East by the legions of the West until the Roman armies laid waste to Palestine, crushing the aspirations of both Ishmael and Isaac. Suddenly they were back to square one. Most of the Jews who survived the destruction of Jerusalem and the devastation of the land at the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 joined the already large diaspora in exile. But a few continued to try to scratch out a living in the blighted environs of Palestine. During the period of Roman and later Byzantine rule, Palestine was utterly neglected. Its poverty became abject. The once lush gardens and fertile fields that we read about in the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you read about an Israel that, that is just beautiful and green and there's just water all over the place. And then you see it on the news or you actually visit the region today and it's very arid, barren. It was not always that way. The once lush gardens and fertile fields were left to the scourge of the harsh elements. Trees and vegetation were cut away with profligate indulgence. 
What little remained of the once beautiful architecture deteriorated badly due to neglect. Even so, the Jews were legally protected and they could work and worship in relative peace and security. And because the entire Arab population had converted to Christianity, Palestine became a tiny Jewish island in the vast sea of the Christian Middle East. But then came Islam. During the time that he was exiled from Mecca, Muhammad launched a fierce jihad against the significant Jewish communities of Hejaz. In Medina, the interim headquarters of his movement, he had the Jewish men scourged and decapitated in the public square. He then divided their women, children, animals, and property among his followers. During this time, he, Muhammad, recorded in his Quranic revelations the immutability of the eternal conflict between the Muslims and the Jews. And this is from uh, Surah 5, Ayat 82, and Surah is chapter Ayat verse, so chapter 5, verse 82 of the Quran says, You shall surely find the most violent of all men in enmity against the Ummah to be the Jews. Chapter 5, verse 51, O true believers, take not the Jews and Christians for your friends. They cannot be trusted. They are defiled filth. Chapter 2, verse 61, the Jews are smitten with vileness and misery and drew on themselves indignation from Allah. Chapter 3, Verse 112 of the Quran, wherever they are found, the Jews reek of destruction, which is their just reward. The author of the Blood of the Moon continues, according to the Meccan chronicles of that early period recorded in the Sahai Muslim annals, all Jews were anathema and were to be annihilated. Quote, Allah's messenger, may peace be upon him, has commanded, fight against the Jews and kill them. Pursue them until even a stone would say, Come here, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Kill him, kill him quickly. For the first time in centuries, the old feud between Ishmael and Isaac had been revived. As he gained more and more control over the Arabian Peninsula and then over the entire Mediterranean world, Muhammad tempered his policy of wholesale slaughter. Expediency dictated that much, uh, that much. Many of the hated Jews proved to be valuable assets to his administration, and they were brought into subjection, which is what Islam means. They were subdued, and taxes were placed upon them in every aspect of their lives. Nevertheless, it was the Muslim conqueror's Quranic right to kill them and confiscate their property at any time. He could revoke this peace of subjugation, based upon their slightest whim, because the Quran had already declared and justified the wholesale murder of the Jews. Muhammad died in A.D. 632, but the scourge of jihad had only begun. Over the next decade, Muhammad's successors, Caliph Abu Bakr and Caliph Umar, were able to consolidate their military control over all of Arabia, from Hejaz to Naj, from Asr to Al-Hassa, they conquered most of Iraq and Egypt. They made serious advances against Syria that permanently destabilized that important Christian province. And by 638, they had conquered Palestine as well. Thousands of Jews were slaughtered along with the Byzantine Christians. A few of the most technically proficient Jews continued to live under Muslim domination. 
but most of the rest fled into uneasy exile in Christian Europe. In any case, Palestine was emptied of its indigenous population once again, and the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac was made moot again, but only for a little while. So God gave them Palestine. God gave them the land of the Canaanites, and they took it, and then they lost it, and with the advent of Zionism, some centuries later in the 19th century, with the advent of Zionism, they gained it again through the unlikely means of a madman named Adolf Hitler and World War II. Hitler and his Nazi regime carried out their Holocaust against the Jews. At the same time, the Jews were suffering vast persecution in Russia. At the same time, the United States of America, Great Britain, and the rest of the European nations uh, had no love for the Jewish people. Anti-Semitism was ripe in the earth. It's satanic. Hear me. Anti-Semitism is satanic. The hatred that has been poured out toward the Jews by all the nations of the earth, it is inspired by the devil himself. But what the Lord did with this collective hatred, of course, Hitler being the spearhead of it, what the Lord did in his grace was to use that hatred to drive Israel back to their promised land. The land promised to them all the way back in Genesis 12. And thus in 1948, Israel was reborn after nearly 2,000 years. What happened immediately after only further establishes the historic reality of this struggle between Isaac and Ishmael. The day after Israel officially became a nation, May 14, 1948, the day after, three Palestinian Arab armies, then the Jada forces, the Arab Liberation Army, and the Fatwa Defense League, along with the national military forces of Lebanon, Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, and several contingents from the Saudi Arabian army, launched a bitter war for control of the entire Palestinian region. Isaac and Ishmael, warring against each other. According to the Arab leaders, there was absolutely no possibility for any sort of compromise or negotiated peace. Haj Amin el-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem who had served the Nazis during World War II, and who now led the Palestinian Arab resistance, declared, quote, the entire Jewish population in Palestine must be destroyed or driven into the sea. Allah has bestowed upon us the rare privilege of finishing what Hitler only began. Let the jihad begin. Murder the Jews. Murder them all. King Abdul Aziz Ibn Saad, the founding monarch of the Saudi Sultanate, said, quote, the Arab nations should sacrifice up to 10 million of their 50 million people if necessary to wipe out Israel. Israel to the Arab world is like a cancer to the human body, and the only way of remedy is to uproot it. Al-Riyad Saad said, quote, the power struggle between Israel and the Arabs is a long-standing or long-term historical trial. Victory or defeat are for us questions of existence or annihilation, the outcome of an irreconcilable hatred. 
Azam Pasha, Secretary General of the Arab League, asserted, quote, this will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre which will be spoken of like the Mongolian massacres and the Crusades. No Jew will be left alive. King Farouk of Egypt concurred, quote, the Jews in Palestine must be exterminated. There can be no other option for those of us who revere the name of Allah. There will be no Dima, there will be only Jihad, so there will be no submission uh, tax-based slavery, so to speak. There will be only jihad, bloody annihilation. From King Abdullah of the Transjordan to Zira Shah of Afghanistan, from Imam Yah of Yemen to King Hassan of Morocco, from Reza Shah of Iran to Regent Abd al-Ilah of Iraq, every Muslim leader in the Middle East called for the destruction of Israel and the execution of the Jews. Even the moderate king of Libya sounded the call for genocide. Quote, the Zionist conquest of Palestine is an affront to all Muslims. This colonialist barbarism cannot and will not be tolerated. There can be no compromise until every Jew is dead and gone. Israeli leaders responded tenaciously that they would fight to the death to keep and defend their new land holdings. And they swore that one day they would occupy Jerusalem as well. Terror spawned terror. Although the war ended in a stalemate, with Israel keeping most of the territory it was allotted in the partition, plus some of the animosity between Ishmael, or plus some, so they kept their land and gained land. The animosity between Ishmael and Isaac intensified. Successive wars in 1956, 1967, and 1973 made their conflict a global concern. In addition, the terrorist strikes, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and the portrayed involvement of Israel in the Lebanese Civil War only aggravated the open wounds of dispossession, anarchy, and geopolitical strife. Violence and strife have become a regular part of the Palestinian landscape, as familiar as the Judean hills. Yasser Arafat, the longtime chairman of the PLO and the mastermind behind the uh, Intifada uprising of the West Bank Gaza Strip, has said again and again, quote, our objective is simply the, the liberation of the Palestinian soil and the establishment of a Palestinian state over every part of it. Thus, the Jews must be removed and Israel must be annihilated. We can accept nothing less. Hafez al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, for the better part of two decades, agreed, quote, we shall never call for nor accept peace. We shall only accept war. We have resolved to drench this land with Israel's blood, to oust the Jews as aggressors, and to throw them into the sea. Hashimi Rafsanjani of Iran explained, every problem in our region can be traced to this single dilemma. The occupation of Dar al-Islam by Jewish infidels or Western imperialists Every political controversy, every boundary dispute, and every internal conflict is spawned by the inability of the Ummah, the faithful Muslim, to faithfully and successively wage jihad. The everlasting struggle between Ishmael and Isaac cannot cease until one or the other is utterly vanished. And so the conflict continues. The blood of Abraham continues to be spilled by the descendants of Ishmael. And so that was a quick historic look 
at the struggle between Isaac and Ishmael that began back in Genesis 21. Volume upon volume has been written about this struggle, and I encourage you on your own time to pursue further understanding of it for your own edification so you know what's going on in the evening news, so you know what is taking place in the hearts of our Muslim and Arab neighbors, as well as in the hearts of many of our Jewish neighbors. And so you also see the spiritual battle that ultimately Satan is behind, as Satan opposes God and opposes God's people, Israel. Satan opposes God's plan, not just for the first promised son to prevail and become a great people known as the Jews, the people of God, the chosen nation of Israel, but Satan opposes the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised child of Jesus, who would be the savior of the world. And so we see the son of promise in Isaac, the son of the bondwoman in Ishmael, and this historic struggle play out on the pages of history, and the evening news. What does Galatians say that's in your bulletin, Galatians chapter 4, regarding these two sons? Galatians 4, 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one of the bondwoman, the other the free woman, the tale of two sons. But he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who of the free woman according to promise, which things are symbolic. Hear me, friends. You must not be born only of the flesh, but born again according to the promise. You must not be of the line of Ishmael spiritually, fleshly, carnal, works righteousness, man's religion. All of man's religion is summed up in man trying to do works that please God and appease his just wrath. God's religion, if we would call it that, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised miracle child, Jesus Christ alone, who came from the line of Abraham and the promised child, Isaac, who was a type or a picture of the Christ who would come. Galatians 4.23 again, But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, the law, the law. For this is Hagar's Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is, the, is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. And so there's a comparison made of the sons and the comparison made of law versus grace and a comparison made of the Jerusalem of Israel that had become a a law-saturated, legalistic, pharisaical, dead Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem from above, the city of God that's coming down, which is a city of grace and a city of the promised 
miracle child. Verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Spiritually, we're not children of the bondwoman. We're not children of slavery to law. We're not children uh, of flesh. We're children of promise. We're children born again by the Spirit of God. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. The true son of promise has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. If you seek salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus circumcision, Christ profits you nothing because you haven't sought salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone when you add circumcision when you add law dietary law circumcision law temple law when you add any law laws that god gave in the old testament or laws that we create in rome laws of popes laws of priests laws of councils laws of mother and father laws of mormon cult the jehovah's witness cult any law law of muslim cult your own law If you add anything to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you have nullified grace. We must come empty-handed. We must not follow the son of the bondwoman, the son of flesh, but the son of promise, the son of amazing grace, the son of faith. Galatians 5 verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So it's either all law or all Christ, and never in between shall they meet. If you try to get Christ but add some law, you really are all law. So you must fulfill all the law perfectly because you have neglected and rejected Christ. Oh, we must give up law for hope of salvation. Embrace Christ alone. And yes, by the grace of God, then we walk in the righteous works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk therein. We are not lawless, but in the sense of being saved by law, yes, we're lawless. We have no hope in any law to save us. Our only hope is in Christ, the Son of promise, not the flesh. Again, Galatians chapter 5 Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You're cut off. You who attempt to be justified by law and you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the tale of the two sons. Instructive, Lord, for salvation. Instructive, Lord, that we would not follow the son of the flesh, the son of works righteousness, the son of law, the son of man's ingenuity and man's works, but follow the son of faith, the son of grace, the son of promise, the son of miracle, who would come 
from the line of Isaac. Isaac was but a type, but a shadow of the son of promise to come to save us all. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation he has purchased for us. We thank you for his tetelestai, his finished work on the cross. And we pray for grace to hold fast to him until we see him face to face. And to make his name known in this dark world. To shine his light forth that many would be saved and be in glory with us. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.